Lord, we ask for wisdom, for strength, for discernment. We ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be not only working through the words that are preached, but, Lord, in the ears and the hearts that are receiving your word this morning. And, Lord, as we go through this passage in particular in the book of Ecclesiastes, may you give us clarity to grasp what is being argued here so that we can understand ultimately what it is you desire of us and from us. And Lord, we praise you for being such a wonderful God to give us a book like this that can connect with our hearts and our struggles and can give us answers, Lord, that point us to to resting in you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The American experiment, that's what describes the founding of our country. It's an idea that a nation can be founded on a set of unifying principles and ideas of governance and not a unifying culture or a unifying religion. America is not a people. America is the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and we all swear allegiance to upholding these principles, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that means that Americans can come from anywhere in the world. They can bring with them any culture around the world. They can come with all sorts of different languages from around the world. And they can practice them in this country as long as their customs do not violate the principles and the standards outlined in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And that is why in the United States of America, we are a melting pot of ethnicities, each bringing unique cloth to the tapestry of our nation. You know, today's world... Uh, You kind of lump people into certain groups based on color. But let me remind you, uh, there was all sorts of people coming from Europe. Germans, Italians, Scottish, English, Welsh, Irish. All Anglo in appearance, but all completely different with all sorts of different cultures. And that has increased. And those that are gathered here today are a reflection of this American experiment. This is what you are going through right now. You may not realize it, but it is still the American experiment. And the idea of it being an experiment is, this was a new thing. This is a new concept. And it actually took off and has impacted the world in which we are living. But sadly, although we may be living and free, we often find ourselves lagging behind in arriving at happiness. Because happiness is always fleeting, isn't it? How do you respond when your life doesn't produce happiness? When your plans are turned upside down? When your home is destroyed by a fire? When you can't make enough money to pay the mortgage or utilities? When you you go on a one-week cruise and there's an outbreak of COVID-19? When your catalytic converter is stolen for the third time from your driveway. Well, if you're British, the answer is simple. You have a cup of tea. There can be bombs flying over and someone will come along and say, do you want a cuppa? 
seems to solve everything. Someone's just been murdered. Would you like a cup of tea? I was reminded this week of a series of commercials put out by a cigar company called Hamlet. This happened in England, so you probably wouldn't know about it. And each commercial shows someone trying to enjoy life on a particular day. But something is always coming along and messing it up. So there's the golfer who's out there and his ball is in the bunker and all you see is kind of the the peak of the bunker. You can't see the person in there and you see this golf club go up in the air and and all you see is sand. And the next moment you see the going again, all you see is sand. This happens over and over and over again until finally you see a hand just throw the ball over on the top. And then another commercial, there's a motorcycle with a sidecar going out for a wonderful ride on a Sunday afternoon and the hinges on the sidecar and the motorcycle come apart, and the motorcycle goes one way, and the sidecar goes another way. And the man keeps trying to take pictures in a photo booth. This is probably the most famous one. You've probably tried to do this before. He puts the money in, and he's waiting for the flash to come, and so he's smiling, and it's not doing it. It's taking too long. So he goes down to check, and all of a sudden, right there, when he puts his head down, and so he's like, oh, okay, fixes himself, and he looks again, and it's still taking too long, so he adjusts again, and it takes it again. And then one more time, he's standing, he's waiting, waiting, and all of a sudden, the chair he's sitting on just drops, and the moment it drops, it takes it again. And what happens at the end of all these commercials is the person is out of the picture, and you hear the scrape of a match, and a lighting of a cigar, and smoke floating up, and the commercial ends with jazz music in the background that says happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. If only happiness were that easy. If only it was something you could grasp and you could have. But friends, that is not the reality, isn't it? It's the struggle of life under the sun that happiness always seems to elude us, but we keep trying to pursue it But our text today will teach us an important truth. That life under the sun is not gain. Life under the sun is gift. Because what we have in this this, uh, section of Scripture is an experiment. It's an experiment that the preacher, likely Solomon, is going through, and he did it in the past, and he's giving us now a report of that, but we set, he sets up the experiment in verses 12 through 15. He's going to take us on this journey where we'll all be experiencing the kind of uh, things that the world offers as answers for satisfaction and happiness, but first he gives us his credentials. He's been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and as king, he, he, he is able to do things out of that position of power and strength and financial resources. He can do whatever he wants to do. There are no restrictions on him. And specifically, it tells us that he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. In other words, wisdom was going to be the filter that he was going to measure these things by. In other words, he doesn't seek the things he will mention next, education, pleasure, morality, work, by acting like a fool, but by acting wisely in this world under the sun. So he is, in one sense, a PhD student 
doing qualitative research by means of a case study of personal experience seeking to answer the question, how does man find happiness living life under the sun? Friends, that's a question that people are always struggling with. And there's a genuineness about his approach here. There's a carefulness because wisdom fashions his research. And it will ultimately show that all mankind's efforts at pursuing gain will fall short. They are vanity and a striving against the wind. And his conclusions and research are not found by acting like a fool in these endeavors, but like I said, by allowing wisdom to guide him. And what is it that he finds? Well, there's two things. Notice what it says here in, in, in our text. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. This is what he observes as he looks on the landscape of life under the sun. First of all, the world is crooked. He's saying, trying to pursue gain in this world under the sun is an unhappy affair because it is a crooked world. Have you ever tried or taken a coat hanger apart because you're trying to use it to get something? I've done that before. I'm trying to reach something. Maybe it's in the garage. Maybe it's in the car. It's, it's tucked around the corner, and I can't move stuff, so I'm getting a coat hanger, and I'm kind of stretching it out. You know, it's a metal one. You unwind it, and you use it, and you get whatever you get. That's fine. And then you try and put the coat hanger back together again. Have fun with that. It's a vain endeavor. Any attempt to retwist the hanger is time that is lost because you will never, ever do it. And that's what he's saying here. This world is crooked. And every attempt to pursue gain turns up empty. Secondly, he says, the world is lacking. You can't make up for what is lacking in this world. It was so also empty because any attempt to find gain in what this world had to offer would always fall short. Any time to try and fill the void of unhappiness with something, it always falls apart. It always fizzles. In today's vernacular, we'd say this. You can't count your chickens before they hatch. And so much of life is banking on chickens. Be a good t-shirt slogan, right? So much of life is banking on chickens when the reality is they will rarely, if ever, hatch. You can't make up for what is lacking. It is an empty pursuit. It's all vanity. It's chasing after the wind. Now, why? Because this world is cursed by sin. It's crooked. It's lacking. All your attempts to find happiness in what this world has to offer are always going to fall short. They're always going to be in vain. But what the preacher's experiment will teach us is that life is not about gain. It's about gifts. Life is not about pursuit. It's about enjoyment. And so the proposition this morning is this. Life under the sun is not found in the pursuit of gain but in the enjoyment of God's gifts. Now, our passage breaks down into three sections. We've looked at the first section, which was the experiment 
kind of explains it, what we just looked at. And then for the next 24 verses, we're going we're gonna to be taken through his research. And then in verses 24 through 26, we're going to come to the conclusion based on the research. All right? So we, we're going to take a lot of time here walking through his research. I'll try and make it enjoyable for you. But the point here is to take us down this path into this hole of research and then to come up the other side with the nuggets of truth that are going to help us then to live our lives in such a way that we will actually find the happiness and the satisfaction that God has given us. So let's jump in here. The pursuit of gain, first of all, is empty. Like I said, for the next 24 verses, the preacher takes us on this PhD research journey to discover man's attempts to find happiness and satisfaction in this life under the sun, and his research will be valid, it will be significant, and at each step of his research, he will find man's pursuit of gain to be vain, empty, void, and last, uh, uh, of any lasting satisfaction. His research will take place in four arenas, education, pleasure, wisdom, which we'll call morality, and then work. So first of all, pursuing gain in education is empty. What he's doing now is he's going to the university. This first arena then is about education. I can imagine the preacher studying literature and art, psychology, sociology, astronomy, physics, chemistry, math. He studies and he grows in wisdom. He learns from every professor. He passes all his exams. And his point is to paint a picture here of a person who's been so studious they've amassed master's degrees and multiple PhD degrees. And in doing that, they will find satisfaction in this world. That's the endeavor. That's the pursuit. And friends, we must be reminded, if you look at the world of academia, there is a snobbery, there is an elitism that comes through that world that says stuff like this. Unless you have a degree after your name, you have no real understanding, you have nothing really to add to the conversation, you really have no answers, you're not qualified to make any assessment, only we who have these multiple masters and PhDs can find answers to life's big questions. And so the preacher ventures into that world to become an academic expert and so to find the answers to life. And with all of his knowledge, he moves into another discipline that takes that knowledge and ponders these deep questions, and it's the arena of philosophy. And he assesses both sanity and wisdom and how they compare with madness and folly. And madness and folly are not necessarily um, just kind of being weird and odd. They are really referring to moral perversity. So as a preacher considered man's view of wisdom that flowed out of his education, he concludes that it's also striving after the wind. That's what we read here. But what man believes, however, is that education can save us from all our ills and places us on the road to happiness. If only we could educate. If only we could educate. If only we could educate. The preacher shows us that the pursuit is as old as the hills. 
Strive to get into the best schools. Study hard and achieve the best results. Learn and keep learning. Climb the ladder of education and you will go far. Join the academic elites and you will surely reach the heights of knowledge. And the preacher says, not so. The more I know, the sadder I become. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more you know, the more things don't make sense. The more you become aware of the pain and the suffering in the world. Socrates himself said, I am the wisest of all the Greeks because I of all men know that I know nothing. I mean, it's a sad state of affairs if you've lived all your life and you've studied all the arenas of academia, you come to the end, you say, you know what? I really know nothing. T.S. Eliot once remarked, all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. Friends, trying to find gain in education is all vanity and chasing after the wind. Now, I know in our culture today, there can be a push for education. People spend hundreds of thousands of dollars making sure their kids can go off to college and get that degree, and in that, they will find happiness. The preacher says, not so. It's vain. It's empty. It's a chasing after the wind. Now, before you start arguing with me, let's keep on working through the project here and the research, because he moves now from this idea of, of education to this idea of pleasure, and he says that pursuing gain and pleasure is empty. So he's moving from the university, and, and now we have a group of, of guys and gals that are going on, and they're hitting the town. They're going to live it up. They're going to have fun together. Notice verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And he's going to describe here six kinds of pleasures he tried to find happiness and satisfaction from. Humor, wine, projects, possessions, music, sexual pleasure. But friends, it's important here that we understand that in Ecclesiastes, pleasure is not something evil. What we have in these six uh, pleasure pursuits is not debauchery, but the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of satisfaction in the things that pleasure has to offer. So let's take them one at a time here. Verse 2, humor. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? The first pleasure then is laughter. Laughter makes us feel good for a moment, doesn't it? But it doesn't ultimately bring lasting satisfaction. I enjoy a good, clean comedian just like anyone else. But comedy doesn't change reality. It just pokes fun at reality. But it doesn't ultimately bring happiness or fulfill the empty or fill the empty void. Friends, humor often exposes the, 
the pain of our struggle that we face in living life under the sun. It often reveals the absurdity of man's attempts at finding meaning in this world, but it doesn't change the world or give us answers. It just identifies with us in our pain and in our struggle. That's why we laugh, because you relate to it. So when you leave the theater and you turn off the comedy special on Netflix or you stop watching those funny videos on YouTube and Facebook and other social media, you may have escaped for a few minutes, but you must still face the real world. So humor doesn't ultimately bring lasting happiness and satisfaction. What about wine? About wine, he says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now notice this, he says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. So we want to be careful that we're not saying here that Solomon was a party animal who was getting drunk like a skunk. That is not what's going on here. He's too wise for that, but he's testing this area of pleasure. You might think of him as more a connoisseur of fine wines, and he's entering into that culture where people like you know, uh, different kinds of wines and alcohol and all that goes with that, and he ultimately still finds that it's empty. And then he moves on to projects here, verses 4 through 6. He tried to create his own Garden of Eden, so to speak. His buildings and his vineyards, we're told, his gardens and his irrigation canals are all a legendary part of history. His temple is known as one of the most significant buildings of all times. But did all this work project satisfy? The answer is no. Now notice his building projects here are not business projects. They're leisure pursuits. He was building for the fun and the enjoyment of building. One commentator suggested that the house building, tree planting, and reservoir construction might correspond to a new shed, some tomatoes, and a sprinkler system in your backyard. So maybe for you, it is the dream that says, if only I had a new kitchen or a new bathroom. If if only I had a healthy vegetable garden and some fruit trees around. If only I had an extended cab truck or the latest Callaway golf driver or or that latest fly fishing reel, then life would be satisfying. If only my backyard were a beautiful oasis, my own personal garden of Eden, then the planets of my life would align and I would find the happiness I'm looking for. And friends, that is often what is driving us when we have these pursuits. You know, you build that kitchen, you're still going to have to deal with sin. You have that wonderful backyard, you're still going to have to deal with rain and wind because we're living in a sin-cursed world. You know what's at the heart of all these projects? Did you notice what he says? Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest growing trees. 
myself, myself. These are all selfish pursuits, selfish projects to create my own personal garden of Eden. Is that what you're doing? Is that what you're striving for? Then he moves into possessions. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had also great possessions of herds and flocks. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. So slaves and larger herds and gold and silver. For us, it would be things like stocks and bonds and cars and motorbikes and boats and land and houses and vacation homes and credit card points and timeshares and books, works of art, all kinds of collectibles. But friends, we must remember that money and materialism can't buy you happiness. And someone said jokingly, all I want is the chance to prove that money and materialism can't buy happiness. Possessions. Music. He says, I got singers, both men and women. Now, it might seem strange that this would be on this list, but just think about how dependent you are on music today. Some of you turn on music as soon as you get out of the bed in the morning to the annoyance of everyone else in the home. Or maybe when you first get in the car, you've got to get the tunes going. Others have to have music in order to get to sleep. Remember when I was in college, there were some guys that were like that. It's like, oh man, this is bad. Now, can you imagine a time before iPhones and iPods? A time when you had to rely on things like radio, CDs, cassette players, LPs, eight tracks. If you don't know what those are, ask the adults around you, especially the ones with grayer hair. But then there was a time even before that. A time, a long time, when the only time you heard music was when it was performed at someone's house or maybe in a theater or maybe at a concert hall. Or maybe you heard it when the workers were in the field or the workers were going down by the river to do stuff or, or maybe soldiers were marching to war. Things like that happen where they're singing and there's music going on. But with Solomon, he had his own ancient version of Spotify and Pandora. If you wanted to listen to Beyonce, he just called it her sing. If you wanted to listen to you 2 He'd snap his fingers, Bono would show up. All he had to do was snap his fingers and Mozart and Pavarotti and Freddie Mercury or Taylor Swift would appear to sing and play. In that context, that's an incredible pleasure. I say that if you want to give me your phone and your iPod for a week and see if you can handle it. But he says even this, was vanity. Sexual pleasure. We're told that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a lot of conflict resolution. That's all I can say to begin with. That's a thousand women available to him any time of the day or night. Certainly he would 
find lasting pleasure in that, mankind would think. He would be the envy of every man. But even that was empty. So Solomon summarizes now his pursuit of pleasure with his own analysis. In the Garden of Eden that I created in the pursuit of pleasure, there is only emptiness. Look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and that was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here's the answer to the rhetorical question asked in chapter 1, verse 3. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? Great Solomon would say, absolutely nothing. So we begin with education, move to pleasure. Now we're going to move into a section we're calling wisdom, but it's, it's the application of wisdom. It's really morality. This is living wisely as a moral citizen. So what Solomon is, is wanting to understand here is this distinction between a, a moral person and those who are living with madness and folly, which is kind of a perverse behavior. And he's comparing them together. And as he compares those two groups, there's two conclusions that he comes to. Conclusion number one, the wise man and the fool both die alike. So I turn to consider wisdom. This is verse 12. And madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom and folly, and there is more gain in light of darkness. He's saying, look, when I looked and I considered wisdom, he says, you know, there is benefit to being, I would say, practically wise in this world. Not just to, you know, to be a fool and, and just go running after everything necessary in, you know, to its nth degree. There's got to be some boundaries. There's got to be some principles that guide me. There's, this, this gain is, is fashioned by wisdom on a practical level. To live with a code and with principles. If you do that, life will go better. But if you live in foolishness and darkness, your life will be a struggle and despite its advantages, even the remarkable gift of wisdom falls under the condemnation of vanity. Why? Because the same events happen to them both. Get this. Both the, the, the wise moral person and the, the, the wicked fool face calamity. Right? A, a tornado doesn't hit a town and say, I'm here to get all the wicked fools. No, the tornado comes into town and it is no respecter of persons. A tsunami washes up on shore. It gets both the foolish and the wise. Wildfires blow through communities and the same is true. Earthquakes don't discriminate the moral person from the fool. They both experience calamity. Both can struggle with disease, right? The plague, COVID-19, cancer, they're no respect of persons. The wise and the fool experiencing them all. 
Both will have to face death. Both will have to face the grim reaper, the wise and the fool, the righteous and the wicked, the believer and the unbeliever. And death is that great equalizer. And if it makes no distinctions, then why bother to be wise rather than a fool? Because they'll both die alike. Secondly, he says, the wise man and the fool will both be forgotten. And I said in my heart, verse 15, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like a fool. So the man who has been wise in this world has a natural hope that he will achieve much through his wisdom, through his morality, through his wise application of the knowledge that he has. But future generations will no more remember the wise and the moral man than they will remember the fool. This is his observation. This is what he's seeing. This is his research conclusion. And as a result of that, he says, I hated life. Verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving afterward. This isn't fair. You would think man's natural tendency to think about who's right and who's wrong, the fool gets what he deserves. But the righteous person, the wise person, that shouldn't happen to him. What's the point of trying? What's the point of living wisely? What's the point of being a morally upright person? All is vanity. But notice, it doesn't say, I hate life. He's looking back and he says, I hated life. But now he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes. Things have changed. He's come to conclusions based on his research. And friends, as the preacher looks back on his research, and he sees that, it is for us a glimmer of hope. Because as we look at our present circumstances, our struggles, our suffering, we might say, I hate this life, but there's hope. Because there's an answer to the question that does ultimately bring satisfaction in this life under the sun. So pursuing gain in education, pursuing gain in pleasure, pursuing gain in this this arena of wisdom and morality. And now we get to pursuing gain in work. And he says, that is also empty. Now friends, it's easy to start a job or to pursue a business endeavor with all excitement and passion and then lose interest in it. You ever done that before? You're asking yourself, why did I get this job? (laughs) I don't like these people. This is too hard. This is not what I thought it was going to be. So you get disillusioned by the work that needs to be done. You get discouraged by all the obstacles maybe that seem to stop you from making progress. And you wonder if it's worth it. And the preacher here makes two observations about his work. Observation number one. 
You can't take it with you. <laughs> this is the head of my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. You've heard the statement, you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Well, you might see it, but trust me, that U-Haul ain't going anywhere except along the lines right there to the graveyard. See, when you're called home, everything you've worked for here on this earth will still be here. You've worked so hard in your life, and when you die, you'll have to leave it with someone else, likely, who didn't have to work for it. The question is, will they be wise or will they be a fool? Have you ever sold a house that you lived in for a long time? A house that you worked on? A house that you labored in? Where you put time and effort to build extensions or putting on a new roof or laboring in the yard or you know, just making the landscaping nice? And then when you're visiting that town again, about 10 years later, you decide to visit the house because you're curious uh, as to what it looks like now? Not a good idea, friends. When you stop in front, you find the driveway is broken and full of cracks and weeds. The yard is overgrown. The shrubbery is out of control. There's junk laid where you once created this beautiful flower bed. The windows are cracked and worn. and Some of the gutters are hanging from the roof. All that labor, all that sweat, all that time dreaming about what you could make this house and the investment you made in it is now just vanity. But the reality is, friends, you can't take it with you. You sold that house. You transferred that property. When you die, you can't take it with you. Secondly, you can't control it when you're gone. Verse 21, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also it is vanity and great evil. You, you will leave all your work to someone else. And who knows if they have the same vision as you? Likely not. Or if they'll squander it away or neglect it. Now we want the labor of our lives to make a difference, don't we? We want it to, to spill over into the next generation that people would value the things that we valued and the things that we put our time and effort into. But we have no control over how people will enjoy what we toil for. It's all vanity. It's empty. So again, in summary here, of all of these pursuits of gain, this is what the preacher says. What has a man, this is verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. The preacher has failed in all in finding satisfaction, in finding happiness in all four of these arenas of happiness. He's found no ultimate happiness or satisfaction in understanding life through wisdom or lasting value through pursuing pleasure or 
no advantage to being a moral citizen versus the fool. There's no lasting benefit of working so hard, so diligently. All of it, all of these worldly endeavors are futile and empty. But thankfully, that is not the end of the experiment. See, he's taken us down into this hole. And he's walking us through this research because he wants now to show us the conclusion. If, if the pursuit of gain is empty, he wants you to know that delighting in God's gifts is satisfying. Now trying to put these two things together might seem confusing, but hopefully they'll, they'll come together here as we, as we push in now to these last few verses. See, all of a sudden, the preacher shifts from speaking about wisdom and pleasure and morality and work to speaking about God. Did you notice that in, in, from verse 14 all the way through our passage, in fact, from the beginning of the book except for 1 verse 13 where he's kind of just mentioned, God is, is void. He's not there. There's been a pursuing after this gain in these areas, but God has not even been considered And he is a God who gives his children wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And it is God who brings the answer to man's happiness, not by man seeking to pursue gain in this life under the sun, but by enjoying all the gifts that he gives us. And he is going to change a perspective of our heart. He wants us to see life under the sun in this world differently, and differently than those who are yet in unbelief. And he comes to two final conclusions to his experiment. Conclusion number one, there is nothing better. Now just notice this verse, 24. I mean, just think about the power of this. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or drink and have enjoyment. You see what he's saying there? At first glance, it seems like the, the, the nihilistic creed that we looked at last week that says, eat, drink, and be, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But what the preacher says here is miles away from this godless perspective. You see, man says eat, drink, and be merry because that is all there is in this life. There's nothing more to this life. The preacher says eat, drink, and be merry because that is what there is. We eat, we drink, we enjoy life because God has given us so many gifts. Now, it's hopefully going to slowly begin to, to work together. You can see what's taking place. So what is the difference, you might ask? The difference is everything. The gifts that God gives us, education, pleasure, wise living, work. They're, they're not tools for us to use as we seek to gain happiness and satisfaction in this world. They're gifts given to us by God to actually enjoy in this world. It's a huge difference, friends. The preacher says there is nothing better. 
This is not a commercial that's going to change in 10 years. This is a statement that has lasted the test of time. This is an exclusive statement, isn't it? It's a statement of, of satisfaction, of happiness. Friends, when you have been working out in the garden and your mouth is parched, there is nothing better than to quench your thirst with an ice cold drink, maybe lemonade, maybe water. Nothing better. When you've gone on vacation and you get sick and you finally get home, there's nothing better than settling into the blankets in your own bed and getting a good night's rest. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than enjoying what God has given us to enjoy in this life. Can I just pause here and say, too much of Christianity says no, 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 no. No. Removing the enjoyment of the things that God has given us as gifts to enjoy. See, we normally eat and drink in order to fuel our bodies so that we're enabled to, to keep going. We normally just go to work hoping that we'll make enough money to pay the bills and put food on the table and raise the family. But God is calling us to a greater and better way of living, to find enjoyment in all we do, in all our eating, in all our drinking, in all our toil. We're to find enjoyment. Secondly, second conclusion, we started with there's nothing better. Conclusion number two, there's nothing worse. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's us, those who follow Christ. This is talking about you. God has given you wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, that means the unbeliever, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. In other words, he's given this pursuit of gain through education, through pleasure, through trying to moral living, through work, as like a spinning on that wheel. It's an empty thing. There's nothing worse and trying to pursue happiness and satisfaction in all these arenas that the world has to offer. This is all the fruit of unbelief. Those who are God's children are the recipients of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Those who remain in unbelief struggle through life's, life gathering and collecting, trying to gain their way to happiness and satisfaction, but they will never reach it, and it's vanity to them. So we, we kind of go back now and say, then what's the point? The key ingredient here is God. God changes everything. We could say now in New Testament times, Christ changes everything. We are united to Him. He gives us new life. He gives us abundant life. He gives us a fresh perspective. He wants us to see life through the lens of the Gospel. That is, that is a gift, friends. I love this verse, Psalm 37.4. Psalmist, 
writing a number of things here about the Word of God, but notice what he says. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. I'm sure you've heard me say this before, but let me explain it again. God is not in the business of giving you the desires of your heart. He's in the business of giving you the desires that are on His heart. How do you get to the desires that are on His heart? You delight yourself in Him. And as you delight yourself in Him, He changes your desires to be conformed to His desires. And when your desires are conformed to His desires, they become your desires. They're your heart desires. This is what's going on here. You're saying, I've got to pursue life. I've got to chase after this satisfaction and happiness is going to be found in the things this world offers. And God is saying, uh 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 uh. Delight yourself in me. And your satisfaction will be found in me. And your desires, the way you look at life, your goals, your agendas, your pursuits, all of those things will flow out of this wonderful relationship and union with me. So he says, stop trying to gain happiness and satisfaction by pursuing gain in this life. Instead, enjoy what God has given you. So let's just kind of quickly go back through these four areas. He's not saying they're bad. He's saying how we look at them is, is wrong and fleeting. So enjoy your education and study hard in order to please the Lord. Enjoy learning and growing in your understanding. Enjoy how your mind is expanding and you're grasping how God's world works. Be thankful for the opportunity to learn and to grow and to see God's perspective in all that learning. Enjoy the pleasures that God has given you to enjoy in this world. Take in a sunset. Meet some friends for a meal at a nice restaurant. Smell the mist after the rain. Look deeply in the eyes of that newborn baby. Go play a round of golf with your friends. Play some music at home and dance around the house when no one is watching. Listen to a good comedian. Laugh until you start to cry and your stomach hurts. Enjoy your spouse with joyful intimacy. Friends, God wants you to delight in these gifts. Enjoy living out your life with wisdom, being a moral citizen. Find joy in treating others with kindness. Letting people into traffic. Opening the door to let someone in in front of you, even if that means they're going to be in the front of the line at Panera. Smiling and encouraging others with your words. Enjoy what it means to be in this world but not of it, because you're doing that for the glory of God. Enjoy the work that God has given you to do. Your attitude to your workplace might be in the dumps right now, friends but it is God's gift to you. And God is coming along with a corrective lens, just like when you go to the optometrist, is A or B, A or B. He's wanting it to change. He wants your stigmatism to change and say, this work is God's gift. It's my gift to you. Now do it and do it with joy. Which means you change your approach. You delight in it. When it's difficult, you seek to enjoy the way God is using you and your gifts to help the company move forward. And if your work is a grind, seek to enjoy the grind. 
Now, you're going to have to look at your own situation and apply it in your context. But he's saying, look, I've given these things to you as gifts. Now, enjoy them. Don't simply use them as tools to somehow find this thing called happiness. Because happiness is like sand that flows through your hands. The moment you find it, or you think you find it, it's gone. And friends, don't live life as if enjoyment must be deferred unto the future. Don't wait till Friday to enjoy life. Don't work hard and raise a family and build a house and work harder to get your kids through college and then when you retire, you can enjoy life. You've missed out on a whole life of enjoyment if that's the case. But that is often what is tied to the American dream. And the American dream is not God's dream. No, God doesn't want you to wait to enjoy His gifts. He wants you to enjoy them today. Right now. So when you go home today, grab your kids if you have them. Smell them. It's weird, I know. They're yours. Look them in the eye. Look your spouse in the eye. Give him or her a big hug. Look at your home. Look at your apartment. Say, this is God's gift. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to use it to bring glory to his name. Look at your car. It could be brand new, it could be a junker. But it's the gift that God has given you. And he's given it to you to bring glory to him. How are you going to enjoy this gift? Look at the things that God has given you. Take a moment to pause and say, are we trying to find happiness in the things of this world? Or is our happiness actually anchored in Christ. And if our, if our happiness is anchored in Christ, then we have the certainty that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And all our treasures are laid beyond the blue because we're not taking them with us. Now, to be more biblical about it, let's finish up with one verse of Scripture here. It's up on the screen. Book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. You've heard me quote it, I think, last week, but I think this is appropriate here. Jesus says now to these people, come to me, all, you, all who labor and are heavy laden. Doesn't that describe the, the pursuits that we have here? And I will give you what? Don't you want rest? Anyone here want rest? See, rest is enjoyment. (laughs) Rest is satisfaction. Rest is comfort. Rest is knowing that it's done. Take my yoke upon you so this rest doesn't come without some responsibility. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light.
Lord, we come to you today. Thankful for the research of the preacher in this book of Ecclesiastes. We're thankful, Lord, that you would take us on a journey where we could see the, the emptiness of education as a means of gain, the emptiness of pleasure as a means of gain, the emptiness of, of moral living as a means of gain, and the emptiness of work as a means of gain. And Lord, how, how you through your writer are, are screaming at us that those four areas are not evil in and of themselves, but they are to be enjoyed as the gifts that you have given us. And we should approach them in such a way that our satisfaction, our meaning, our, our hope, our identity is not found in those things, but it is found in You. And so Lord, as we, as we wrestle with these things in our heart, help us to have a fresh perspective of what You are calling us to. To put on the, the lens of verses 24-26 through 26 and to look at life being fueled by You shaped and fashioned by You, and that You want us to enjoy eating and drinking, spending time with one another. We are a people who are most blessed. Therefore, we are a people who live not in the arena of happiness, but we live in the arena of joy that is a constant because of what You have done in Your Son Jesus Christ for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for those truths. Help us with them now, we ask in your name. Amen.